TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Mihir. And I'm Debra. Hey, Deb. It's great to see you. Deb Spar is our wonderful colleague here at HBS. We're so glad you decided to join us, Deb. It is such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. Tell us a little bit about projects that you're working on, the research that you're excited about. What are you up to these days? Sure. So I wear many hats here at HBS which means I'm never bored, which is great. (laughs) I am the Senior Associate Dean for Business and Global Society. And I'm running a new institute that we have here, the Institute for the Study of Business and Global Society, which is thankfully shortened to BIGS. And (laughs) under the BIGS umbrella, we're uh, looking to expand and amplify all those many places where business and society collide. So work around social justice, gender issues, racial issues, climate change, economic mobility. So it's kind of a daunting but fascinating project. And then in my more personal part of my work life, I'm teaching a course now called Capitalism and the State, which Mm. has been great. Cats for short. Um, I like acronyms. (laughs) Yeah, you're good at acronyms. I have bigs and cats. (laughs) It's a really unusual course at HBS. Mm -hmm. We read the foundational texts of capitalism. So we start with Hobbes, Locke. We work our way through Marx, Hayek, Polanyi, Milton Friedman. And I started it three years ago. I thought, my gosh, nobody's going to turn up and take this class. But to my incredibly happy surprise... The class has been amazing. The students are fabulous. Oh, that's great. I think I have the perfect topic for you to talk about. Great. (laughs) I thought we could talk about artificial intelligence and regulation. I'm very curious to hear how you're thinking about this issue. And I thought we could actually talk a little bit about the fading distinction between the personal and the professional. So this is like a much larger, big thing topic, but... Over the longer history, we've lost in some ways the distinction between our personal lives and our professional lives Mm. with remote work and with changing habits of work. And I'm curious to hear what you all make of that. So we'll solve two small problems in the world in the next half an hour. (laughs) Wonderful. Two great topics. Okay. So AI and the state. Tell us, Felix, what did you have in mind? 
It's everywhere. It's what everybody's talking about all the time now. And we have a little bit of everything from people who think, oh my God, AI will change everything and will live in some sort of a paradise. And we go all the way to people who think this is the worst thing that has happened to humanity in a long time and maybe in forever. Mm. And so I'm curious how you think about the role of government, the role of the state in anticipating these effects, in making sure that people don't get harmed, in making sure that we get the most of the benefits. The most interesting attempt that I have seen so far thinking about these issues is what the White House called a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that everybody should enjoy five rights in the context of automated systems. First one is you should be protected from harm. So think of poor medical advice that AI might give. That's not a harm that you should be exposed to. It shouldn't discriminate. You should be able to control your own data. Fourth, you should know when AI is used. So say you look at an image and you wonder, uh, is this an artist? Is this a machine? We should have some signaling what the source is. And then finally, Wherever feasible, you should have human alternatives available. So if you cannot get quite along with the chatbot, <laughs> you should be able to opt out and talk to a real human being. What do you make even of the idea of an AI Bill of Rights? I want to pause for a second on what you said, Felix, at the outset, which is people are kind of in this split reality, mm -hmm. that some people think this is the best thing ever and some people think it's worse. And I just want to note that that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Every time there's a massive breakthrough technology, and for sure AI is a massive breakthrough technology, you get these utopians and these dystopians. And it goes all the way back to the printing press. Mm -hmm. The printing press came around. If you were a monk who'd spent your whole life scribbling by hand, my God, the printing press was revolutionary. And it was for both better and worse. And even in our own lifetimes, I remember this same utopian tinged with dystopian view in the mid-90s when the internet happened. Mm -hmm. This split reaction is pretty common, even if it's magnified and amplified by the nature of this technology, which does appear to be a big deal. And what I also think you see, and this connects to the Bill of Rights here, is that at these moments of technological breakthrough, particularly in the United States, where we love innovation, mm. is that there's this sense that eh, we don't want the government to get involved. Because mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. do governments do? They squash innovation. They put bureaucratic rules in place. We think they're silly. We think they're incapable of doing anything. Mm -hmm. There's always this kind of hysteria on both sides. And it's interesting in this case that actually many tech leaders have called for a pause. Yeah. So if you put aside the open AI folks, everybody's been asking a little bit about, well, we should take six months and just pause. So it's interesting that the industry themselves are saying this, which makes you think. Right. To your question, Felix, I think of this in three buckets. So there are potential, I think, economic issues, there are potential environmental issues, and there's potential existential issues. Mm -hmm. The economic issues are the ones that I think people end up talking about the most and the ones we worry about. But I think actually there's little role for government, which is a way of saying, is this going to displace a lot of workers in rapid fire? And I think the answer to that is yes. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of cries because these will be knowledge workers who are politically powerful and they'll want things to be paused. The environmental ones, I think, are the ones the Bill of Rights addresses, which is, is it codifying bias? Is it 
hardening a lot of bad things in society. And do we need regulations around that? And then the final one is the one that is really hard to think through, which is the existential risk. There are serious people talking about existential risks, that this is conceivably the beginning of a path towards real loss of control over the future of humanity. The existential one is the one that I don't know how to think about, because there are serious people who think this is akin to nuclear proliferation or mm-hmm. gain-of-function research in biology or God knows what. <laughs> I don't know. Does that ring true? Yeah, I think your three buckets are exactly right. I would be slightly more optimistic on the existential risk. Uh-huh. I think the risk is probably there. I think we don't quite yet know. But in the examples you gave, nuclear war was pretty existential as well. Absolutely. It certainly yeah. seems easier in retrospect, but that's because it's in mm-hmm. retrospect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. The other one that's very recent, which doesn't get as much attention anymore, is CRISPR. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. CRISPR is a technology that we don't interact with on a daily basis, whereas we've all interacted with chatbot. But CRISPR is equally profound because with CRISPR, you can start to edit and modify the very genetic foundation of humans. It's almost like CRISPR and AI are the two different ends of the spectrum. AI is going to displace us through external technologies, and CRISPR is going to displace us by modifying the heck out of us. But they're both pretty existential. For CRISPR, what happened early on was that the people who knew how to do it, the scientists, they were the ones who self-imposed a ban. One argument for the second of your buckets, me here, that is really interesting to me is where do we need additional activity by the government? And where is what we have in place today roughly sufficient because it's not that dramatic a departure from the kind of regulation that we used in the past. So I'm thinking about discrimination. We have pretty good rules on the book, Mm -hmm. and there it's probably mostly a question of will independent researchers have access to these technologies so that they can prove that on average there's bias in a particular system. That is, just as someone who experiences the consequences of a system, so say my mortgage application gets declined, it'll be super hard for me to say, was I discriminated against in some fashion that is illegal, or is it just that I'm at a particularly good credit risk and I shouldn't, in fact, get a mortgage? So, There, I think, is some disclosure, some transparency rules, but the actual harm that we want to prevent is probably, current legal rules are probably sufficient. Where it's much less clear to me is, say, in issues of take bad medical advice. Mm -hmm. You might remember when Facebook released Galactica, its own version of artificial intelligence. The system was trained only on scientific research. And it gave the worst advice you can possibly imagine. And in fact, Facebook yanked it after two days. So in those arenas, I wonder whether the right way to think about what we need is something very similar to drugs, where we have a pre-deployment test that then says this system is ready to give medical advice or this system is not ready to give medical advice. And you might be able to release it, except whenever someone asks a medical question, the system would respond, actually, that's not something I'm capable of doing. And so using the drug approval process as a model might be quite interesting for some of the arenas of concern. There's a couple of models. I think that the drug approval model is a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. The other interesting model, and I hesitate a little bit because it's so controversial right now, is publishing models. 
So the U.S. Congress made a decision back in the 90s to treat Internet companies as platforms rather than publishers. So they're not responsible for the content. Right. And I think there's many now who are sort of ruining that decision. But going forward, you could treat chatbots as publishers in the sense that they could be held liable. So one of the things that we do very well in this country is we sue very effectively. Mm -hmm. And the threat of suit is a powerful weapon so that if this medical prescribing chatbot gave bad advice, is it liable for that advice? And I'm not advocating for that, but again, I think that's another model that could be applied. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fascinating thing about both those examples is it calls into question all the other parts of the internet in a way. Yeah. ChatGPT is one manifestation of that. But once one goes down the path of saying that for liability purposes or, Felix, for your story about approvals, it's not that different than Googling something. The big difference with current versions of AI is that ChatGPT4 is so compellingly presenting their answers in a way that we find <laughs> right. so credible, yeah. which is a part of what's fantastic about it. Yeah. We worried about this for a long time, for the last 25 years. People Google <laughs> symptoms and it's like the doctor's <laughs> worst enemy. But now it is so credible. It's so believable. So I think it has consequences for then how we think about the internet more generally. And for your story, Deb, for publishers, for sure. If ChatGPT is publishing, then why aren't we all publishing. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. I also worry greatly about what this does to our socio-psychological health. Mm -hmm. The interiority mm -hmm. that we already all suffer from and the mental health issues that it's causing, there are going to be people who spend all their time talking to people on JAT right. And that just strikes me as really complicated mm -hmm. for our collective mental health. There's one other piece, if I could just throw it out there, and that's the question of property rights. We all gave away big chunks of our personal information, which is the stuff that enables these various algorithms to make us feel so bad all the time. We gave it away for the sheer pleasure of watching cat videos or baby pictures from our college roommate. We, you know, we all know those tropes. Mm -hmm. But this is another moment where you could think about it's maybe our last gasp moment of trying to flip the equation on property rights. Do we own our personal data? Do we own our genetic data? Do we own our images? Right. Look what a horrible bargain it is. You give away all your most intimate secrets, and the only thing you get out of it is feeling miserable about yourself. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the reasons why I'm skeptical about the litigation-focused intervention, because as we now see with social media, even if we have very good evidence that leads to mass depression among young people, given how popular the media are and how powerful the companies are, it's too late. We can't roll it back, even though mm. we now see massive harm. And this is one of the things that I actually like about this effort to think about an AI Bill of Rights, because the harm is not going to look like what we think it's going to look like. It's going to be just like social media. We had a sense of how it would evolve and what it might be able to do. But ultimately, the way it would harm society was not a big piece of conversation early on. And so we want rules in place that allow us to intervene before it becomes a problem. Right. I wonder what you make of one other form of government action that we haven't yet talked about. You know, we've talked about banning it. We've talked about property rights. We've talked about a lot of the other ones. The one that I miss perhaps the most is 
political leaders can allow us to have a conversation about technology in a way that we just don't have. Yeah. So the Bill of Rights, in a way, Felix, it's a serious effort to actually codify certain rights, but it's also a way to make sure people understand what is going on. Mm -hmm. What I really would love to see politicians do is actually have meaningful conversations about the role of technology in our lives yeah. and actually yes. lead that conversation so that families are thinking about what they're doing. Right. And that seems totally absent for the last 20 years. Yeah. And then I think you would very quickly see how complicated things are, how complex the issue is. So right. take the notion of property rights for derivative works. Well, we might imagine, okay, so if you run a large language model, you have to compensate original sources. But what does this mean for the journalist at some local paper that reads something in the Wall Street Journal and then writes a derivative work? Right. Are you now going to pay the Wall Street Journal if in an art class you're inspired by something that Picasso did a little while ago? Mm -hmm. I think you're completely right about the seriousness of the issues and the relative lack of competence of some of the people who we would like to be more competent. Mm. I don't want to leave this without thinking about the existential stuff a little bit more because okay. I think we've given a short trip. The part where we all get killed by the robots? Well, yeah. <laughs> you both kind of suggested, well, we can put it in a box. We can ban it. Yeah. I'm not so sure. This is not an area where we can control the means of production because computing power is too great and too fast. So in these areas like biology and gain-of-function research or nuclear or CRISPR, you basically need multilateral cooperation and you need to control the means of production. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can't do that. Yeah. So I confess that gives me more pause if this is going to happen, if there is something like artificial general intelligence that evolves. I think we're gonna have to wait until some kind of a cataclysmic thing before people wake up and say, we have to put a box around it. Otherwise, I think it's too hard. I don't know, is that pessimistic or do you guys see it as more reasonable? I kind of agree. Agree with you, which in some odd way is liberating. I think we can do the property rights. I think we can do the anti-discrimination. That's within the realm of what we kind of know how to do. But I think you're right. If AGI emerges and it actually is smarter and cleverer than we are, I become quite Kurzweilian in saying that this is sort of a part of our human evolution I can wring my hands about it and wish we could go back to the bucolic days of the 17th century, but we may just be headed there as a species. Yeah. What do you think, Felix? One of the things that makes me a little more optimistic is the Facebook Galactica example. You might remember, in part, it was shut down because the chatbots started talking to one another. And in that conversation between chatbots, the chatbots moved away from English. They seemed to understand each other, but the researchers at Facebook couldn't understand what these entities were saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a really scary moment. And the Facebook decision to then shut it down, maybe this is not so unlikely, in particular because you are embedded in a system where corporations are in many ways held responsible for the kinds of things that they do. And maybe the concern about collateral damage from systems that are poorly understood 
those perhaps represent some sort of guardrail that will keep things maybe more in line than we would have anticipated. I'm most worried about, say, situations of war where you don't really care about collateral damage. I think there could be really scary. But in regular civilian life, if you feel like I've created a machine over which I have little control, it might be bad for someone else, it might be bad for myself, it might be bad for my company, maybe moments of responsibility like the Galactica moment will keep us out of the worst consequences of automated systems. But just the race to be the first is enormously tempting. And then when it's mobilized by the state in a violent world, then it's even more so. I'll just give you a slightly different prediction. I think we're going to fall in love with these things. I think they're going to sneak up to us through love, not war, if you will, that we're going to use them to help mind our children, to read that same book over and over again. We're going to use them to mind our elderly, our parents and our grandparents. We know we're coming to this demographic cliff One of the most interesting uses I've heard is using the AI on your own Google data. Mm -hmm. I can ask it what happened in Malta on a particular day, but what's much more useful to me is, what was I doing on that Thursday? (laughs) Where did I take Mm -hmm. that family vacation? And we will become so attached to using these, not as in their sort of violent incarnation, but as helpmates and playmates and soulmates. And me here, sadly, it connects to the loneliness you were describing earlier. Yeah, that's like dystopian to me. (laughs) We're going to fall in love with them. They're going to kill us through love. That's where it's going to (laughs) go. So me here, the blurry line between professional and personal lives... So that boundary between the personal and work life has really just been erased over the last 50 years, and particularly during COVID, of course. And then the question becomes, what do we lose and what do we gain in that process? For example, emotionally, many people think about the people they work with as family. Mm -hmm. Many people run their families with PowerPoint slides and planners (laughs) that they use their office software for. And so we just have seen this erasure of that line between the personal and the work life. And I'm curious if you think about that as a net positive to all of us or as something that we have to really guard against and fight back against. So I think it's a fascinating topic. The world where we have these clean boundaries between work and home is itself a relatively recent construction. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. a construction of the Industrial Revolution. So before the Industrial Revolution, there were no boundaries between work and home, particularly folks who weren't rich. Your work was the farm or maybe making clothes and making food, and it all happened in one room. It looks a little bit the way we all looked on Zoom. Everybody's together, kids are underfoot. (laughs) During Zoom, we were like back to the future. So we're going back to that Mm -hmm. earlier world. And I think as with most changes, it's both good and bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Felix? So building on this historical example, Deb, I find it interesting to think about What are the kinds of things that exist in the workplace that are really valuable in personal space also? So the historical example is there used to be not clocks in the house. Time was basically sunrise and sunset. And 
Then, as a result of industrial work, all of a sudden we had clocks in the house and we started scheduling. And so one of the things that I actually find we do pretty well in a work environment, and maybe not quite as well in many of our personal decisions, is being intentional about time and being intentional about how we use time. Mm -hmm. Time is not unlimited, and you should carefully think about do you spend it with friends? Do you spend it with family? What kinds of activities do you make time for? I know about myself that often sort of looking back after a weekend, in particular if it's say like a three-day weekend, mm -hmm. three days, what did I actually do? And somehow time runs away and I wasn't very intentional about it. And that to me is one example where work attitudes can actually make family and personal lives better. Anchoring this in kind of the pre-industrial world makes you realize that none of this is terribly new. I also think that people who worry about this problem a lot, I don't think realize that that industrial world setup, Deb, where work was distinct and was eight or nine hours in a day, it's really inflexible. Yeah. So the boon of flexibility is massive. It creates so much slack in the system, which is really valuable. The cost is that people are on all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something dangerous. Yeah. I also do think, Felix, we want to be intentional about time, but there is this confusion about our private lives where we become so programmatic about it that it loses its magical moments. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I do think there are people who spend so much time at work and become socialized in work environments where they think that those work environments will give them the personal benefits that are much more likely to arrive in a private realm. So there is a little confusion that I think that can happen. Yeah. In the pre-industrial era, Deb, the people you worked with and the people you lived with, the private and the work was all the same people. Right. Now right. we have different people. And so the nature of our connections, I think there it can be confusion in people's minds about who it is that matters, how we allocate time. That was not there in the pre-industrial era. Yeah. I don't know if that resonates. I think that's exactly right. I mean, two quick points back. I think the pendulum swung a little bit too far in terms of love your coworkers, follow your passion. Yes, it's really nice to have work you feel satisfied by, fulfilled by, to have coworkers you enjoy. But they're kind of not your family. Yeah. Your family, much as you might want to at times, you know, they can't fire you. <laughs> your boss can fire you. So yeah. I think maintaining that distinction is really important. Can I push back on the notion of these social relations that are supposedly very different at work and outside work? One of the big historical changes is that the circle that was naturally your family, that's a very small circle now. And you alluded to the demographic cliff Deb, in mm. the earlier segment is becoming smaller by the day in the sense that many people don't have children at all. And if they have children, it's typically one or maybe two. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure where your intuition comes from that say, then I hang out with my friends, where my friends might be people I meet, I don't know, in a dance class. Or my friends might be people who I happen to have met at work. Why is that distinction so important? It's a good point. And I think I was drawing a slightly different distinction. I think having friends from work and having work, in fact, be a really important part of your life is wonderful. But I think work has a hierarchy, which family doesn't. 
Are you sure about that? All right, all right, fair enough. (laughs) It's not a good description of my family. All right, we we don't need to go there. (laughs) But I think most workplaces have some kind of a hierarchy and some kind of reporting relationships that are always going to affect your relationship. Maybe not the horizontal relationship. Mm -hmm. So coworkers as friends, I think, totally fine. But just being clear that it is a different environment. Yeah. I think, Felix, you're right to push back on some very sharp distinction, not just because people aren't having as kids as much, but they're not forming households as much. The single family households are like the most fast growing segment of the population. So we see more and more people living by themselves. And so we shouldn't be hearkening back to some weird idea of some nuclear family with 2.5 kids in a garage. (laughs) It's just not that important as it once was. But I do think there is this fundamental distinction between the private and the public that these domains are different. Can people who you work with become deep friends? Absolutely. But I think there is just this confusion about where meaning comes from. Not that meaning has to come from family, but meaning has to come from private relationships, Mm -hmm, friendships. mm -hmm. I think what I'm worried about is people seeking excessive amounts of meaning from their work domain because their private domains are just shallower than they used to be, in part for the reasons we talked about in the first segment. And that, I think, is a little bit of a confusion. One question I have for the two of you is, we've been talking now about a particular segment of the population. So even now, with all the advances in hybrid work, 60% of all the people who have a job need to be present at a particular location. They cannot work from home. Are we heading towards two classes you belong to the commuting class or you don't belong to the commuting class? Is that a source of future tension? What's your sense? Yeah, I think sadly it is. I think one of the things that makes me most nervous about where we are right now societally is that these divisions are becoming more and more stark in a number of realms. So there's the commuting class, the factory class. We're seeing socioeconomic divides Increasingly, we're facing a laboring class that's getting the short end of the stick, not only in terms of economics anymore, but also in terms of societal relations, in terms of flexibility, in terms of freedom. And I think that's something we need to be very attuned to and sadly worry about. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about this very much, honestly, but this cleavage between people who are place-based and people who are not place-based, I think is what you're referencing, Felix. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. actually sharper than you would think. And it's not necessarily Mm skill-based. It has a skill component. There are a lot of service workers who are relatively lower skilled who are place-based. But there's a lot of medicine, for example, which can still be place-based. There's a lot of actual activities which are place-based, including a little bit of what we all do. It's a new division. It's a new dividing line. Yeah. So up until now, we think of the people who are non-place-based as being the upper hand. I think one of the things we're going to see is whether that is really true. Uh When relative wages change, as people realize that non-place-based work actually can be located anywhere. Anywhere, (laughs) That seeming upper hand towards the non-place-based may be more fleeting than we think it is. But I think you're absolutely right to highlight it as a cleavage that we have not yet seen the full ramifications of. Right. Mm. Okay, well, at least in my experience, I have found that professional acquaintances can quickly become friends. And so I am delighted to belie that uh, assumption that those two worlds need to be different. But we'll see how this changes over time. I think it's one of these things that's always happening in the background, this push and pull between the private and the public and between work and personal. And it's worth being more cognizant about. 
So super interesting. Okay, recommendations. Deb, what do you got for us? So I've struggled with this, and I've come up with two books to recommend. Nice. And they're total different ends of the spectrum. So I would recommend Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. Mm. It is a terrifying book. It's a hefty read. I'm not sure I agree with everything in it. But if you really want to be scared about what's going to happen as the AIs get smarter and smarter— Read that book. You'll lose sleep. Mm. But I think it's really important to read. The other book that I have found strangely powerful and comforting over these past few years as we've gone through all of these massive changes is War and Peace. Mm. To go back to one of the masterpieces of literature, you have to read it slowly. This is not a book you can flip through. But Tolstoy was writing during a time of what felt like amazing existential change to him. And he's quite profound about this grappling with the distance between what you can do as an individual and how the world is moving and what you can do and, quite frankly, what you can't do. And so in the face of these existential changes, I actually found it remarkably comforting to Mm. say people have lived through tough times before and we as humanity have managed somehow to muddle our way through. Wow. Wow. That's okay, heavy stuff. Two books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and surveillance capitalism. There you go. <laughs> Felix, what do you have? I have a far more trivial recommendation. <laughs> I don't know if you have that problem, but we have a family calendar in part to make sure we're at the same place at the same time. And that's sometimes hard to do because the different software systems don't really speak to one another in an easy way. So if you're using Outlook at work and maybe you're using a Gmail calendar at home, that's a difficulty. There's a little piece of software that synchronizes all of this. It's called G-Syncit, and it literally bridges the most common software that you would use for scheduling. It's very easy to install. It works with everything that is popular. Wow, that sounds good. Super useful. I have to say, this makes me feel like even more of a Luddite than I usually do because we are in the middle of summer calendar planning. And believe it or not, I'm doing it like on a whiteboard. (laughs) (laughs) That may be the most efficient. (laughs) You'll take it with you, right? When you travel. Yeah, so you take a photo of it with you. (laughs) What do you have for us, Mihir? So I have also something considerably lower brow than War and Peace, which is... (laughs) Beef, which is a new show on Netflix, and it is fantastic. So it is a classic formula, which is it's a road rage incident, but it is done so brilliantly and so specifically with an emphasis on the Asian American community in Southern California. It stars Stephen Yoon and Ali Wong, and this road rage incident spirals out of control. It becomes like a meditation on why people are angry becomes a meditation on like capitalism somehow of actually the issues we were just talking about and it is hilariously funny oh okay. so you can get through it pretty quick i have seldom seen a show where i've both laughed as much as i have during beef and then also thought about it afterwards okay so wow. i would recommend it as a really great show sounds great and this was it for tonight this was after hours from the ted audio collective
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.